0: I would have you turn today uh, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Where we read, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Our Baptist brethren deny that circumcision in the Old Testament has anything directly to do with baptism in the New Testament. For they believe that circumcision in the Old Testament was just an outward national sign for the Israelite or a mere external sign of earthly temporal blessings. There's no connection between the circumcision of the Old Testament and therefore the baptism of the New Testament and their mind set in way of thinking, but such is not the case at all as we shall see for circumcision was an outward sign just like baptism, but like baptism, it was an outward sign that represented spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings of the gospel and not mere earthly and temporal blessings as is often alleged. Dear ones, if it can be demonstrated that circumcision represented the spiritual uh, promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ and as such was applied to infant children in the Old Testament, then all we need to demonstrate is that baptism in the New Testament has replaced circumcision of the Old Testament. For no one disputes that baptism represents the spiritual promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to focus our attention today, therefore, on one question. And that question is this. What is the meaning of circumcision? And from the meaning of circumcision, we're going to apply that to baptism. What is the meaning of circumcision? Look with me again at our text in this regard. And in this context, it's speaking when it says, and he Verse 11, it's speaking of Abraham. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. The letter to the Romans was penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in or about 56 to 57 AD. And the theme of Paul's letter to the Romans is stated in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In this The theme that we have just read, the power of God to save undeserving sinners, is gloriously magnified, whether the sinner be a Jew or whether the sinner be a Gentile. In the first three chapters of this letter to the Romans, Paul proves that all men, both Jew and Gentile, are unrighteous before God, having sinned against God by having broken his holy commandments. None are excused. All are sinners. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Everyone stands guilty before God and stands condemned before His bar of infinite justice and righteousness and holiness. Furthermore, God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, clearly declares there is nothing that sinners like you and I can do to rescue ourselves By our own works of righteousness from God's righteous judgment. We cannot blot out our own sin by our works, by our deeds, in any way, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, and verse 19. Dear ones, we're all drowning, if you will, to use this analogy. We're all drowning in the same sea of sin. And unless one who is not drowning in that sea of sin, comes from outside of that situation to rescue us, we will all certainly perish in everlasting hell and death. Our only hope of rescue and salvation must come from Christ, who is absolutely righteous and who has been appointed as man's only, only mediator to fulfill God's law perfectly and to suffer the penalty for man's sin, which he so deserved, that penalty. Man deserved that penalty. But all of those who trust in Jesus Christ, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, those are the ones for whom Christ suffered and died, that they might be forgiven all of their sin and might be accounted righteous before God. We read in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Then coming to chapter 4 of Romans Paul brings forth two witnesses from the Old Testament to testify the blessedness of God's forgiveness and righteousness which are received by faith alone. To those two witnesses are Abraham and David. And we're focusing our attention today upon Abraham. Abraham is a particularly important witness inasmuch as he is the father, the human father of the Jew. Notice in Romans 4.1, it says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? His testimony would carry a lot of weight in the mind of the Jew. The Jews at that time sought to be righteous before God. At least the vast majority of them sought to be righteous before God on the basis of their own law-keeping. That is, by their own works of righteousness. Whether it was circumcision, whether it was the keeping of the Sabbath, or whether it was their dietary laws or other commandments of God, they believed that, that they could in some way affect their righteousness and their standing before God on the basis of what they did and accomplished apparently like many today they believe that their good works would cancel out their bad works but that is not what the scripture teaches at all the Jews of Paul's time believed that if one were not circumcised in fact according to the law of Moses one could not receive God's forgiveness of sin and God's righteousness that was the very issue that came into play in Acts chapter 15 Acts 15.1, you recall, this is raised, where it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Therefore, the only hope for Gentiles, according to such Jews, was to become proselytes by circumcision and keep the ceremonies of the Old Testament. That was the only hope for those Gentiles. The problem with this view of salvation is that it proceeds upon the delusion that we are ultimately saved by what we do rather than by what God has done through Jesus Christ. How would Paul demonstrate to the Jews from the Old Testament scriptures that forgiveness and righteousness from God never came through circumcision, never came through their works of obedience. Well, Paul appealed to Abraham to make this very point. For we know from the scripture itself that Abraham first believed in the Lord and was declared righteous by God according to Genesis fifteen six, And then after that, he received circumcision from God as God's stamp of approval upon the gospel promises that had been made to him and to his children in the covenant of grace. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul calls this covenant Made with Abraham and his children, because the covenant in Genesis 17:7 7 not only was made with Abraham, but specifically God says He made it with Abraham and his children, with and his seed. But this particular covenant made with Abraham and his children, and stamped with God's approval by the sign and seal of circumcision, was a Christian covenant. Was a Christian covenant. Why do I say that? Well, according to Paul in Galatians 3 8, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The good news of Jesus Christ was preached to Abraham. In this covenant that was proclaimed to Abraham and was signed or uh, was sealed, signed and sealed by circumcision. Notice what Paul says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, through faith, and we again can assume there through faith in Jesus Christ preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And so that's the first reason why I say this covenant made with Abraham and his children was a Christian covenant. And therefore, the sign and seal of that covenant must be likewise a Christian sign and seal if it signed and sealed a Christian covenant. Furthermore, in Galatians chapter 3, notice what we read in verses 16 and 17. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Now this Paul is focusing upon the greater seed to which the promises pointed, which was to Christ. It's not to say that Abraham's Children, immediate children, and, and subsequent children were not in view as seed. But this is the seed to which the promises pointed, even to Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is a Christian covenant that points to Jesus Christ, this covenant made with Abraham. Verse 17 says, even making it more clear, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, in Christ, the law, that is the law under Moses, which came later, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. Paul is saying that this covenant was made and was confirmed before God by way of of the sign that was given. The sign of circumcision was confirmed before God in Jesus Christ. And the law of coming, the law of Moses coming 430 years later, does not invalidate the promises that were made to Abraham and to his children as being in Jesus Christ. Promises of salvation, of justification through Jesus Christ doesn't invalidate that the fact that the law came 430 years later. The promise continues through that period of time of the law and into the time when Christ actually appeared in accomplished redemption. Thus Abraham, dear ones, was not justified before God by circumcision or any work on his part, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ who was to come. You see, this is not only a problem that we find uh, amongst the Jews at Paul's time. Uh, this is a heresy that has been promoted by Rome as well. The Roman Catholic Church teaches as well that it is by, what, uh, by means of uh, these particular ord- uh, sacraments that have been given that one is justified, that one is forgiven, that one is acceptable before God. Whereas the Protestant Reformation, going back to the scriptures, said, no, it is through the imputed righteousness of Christ alone that we are saved. And it's trusting in that alone by which we have righteousness in life and forgiveness of sin. Baptism and all of the sacrament, the, the, the other sacraments, the ordinances of God, are given to help and to aid our faith. But they are not that which save us. Paul says in Romans 4.11 that circumcision was a sign and a seal. He uses those two terms, a sign and a seal. And in order to understand this passage, we need to understand what is the purpose of a sign and seal. What are signs and seals? Because that which was a sign and seal in circumcision is likewise a sign and seal in baptism. Baptism likewise is, is a sign and seal. So, how is circumcision a sign, first of all? Uh, an outward sign points to the reality which it represents. If the sign is here, it points to the reality. It represents something that is not seen, it, 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 it signifies something that is not seen with the eye. When you're driving along the highway, and out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, you see this large sign with those famous golden arches on that sign, uh, McDonald's, and you're hungry. Do you pull up alongside the sign and, and expect to receive a Big Mac if you order it uh, beneath that sign? Or if you have a problem with McDonald's, uh, let's say, a health food store. Uh, uh, but, but anyway, the, um, uh, is that where you re- expect to receive your food? Is that the sign? you know the sign points to you know something you can't see which is up the road where you're going to receive the food if you go in and you you know make the exchange and the, the cash etc 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 and so the sign points you to the reality similarly circumcision was an outward sign given by god to abraham and to abraham's descendants to israel which pointed to all of the blessings of God's salvation in Jesus Christ who was to come. Which blessings may be received through faith in the coming Messiah and Savior who would save them from their sin. That's a sign. Now, how is circumcision a seal? Let's talk about that one for a moment. An outward seal is a likewise a visible object that gives the parties involved in a covenant or contract confidence that the promises that have been made will be fulfilled by the one making the promises. Don't you think a contract, just thinking more in general terms, don't you think, and when you sign contracts, don't you think that a contract that is ratified by the signatures of the parties involved is more likely to build confidence uh, in you and in the other party than a contract that has no signatures? Why do we do that? Is it not to instill confidence? It doesn't make the contract say anything different than what it already says. It just instills confidence and trust. Well, this person means what he says and he's going to kind of fulfill his end of the bargain here. Well, likewise, uh, covenants in the ancient world uh, were often ratified and given that stamp of uh, approval by... Uh, the shedding of blood, the blood of animals. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 and following, I won't look all of these passages up. You can do so at your leisure. Exodus 24, 8, Jeremiah 34, verses 18 and 19. In other places, you will find that covenants were sealed by the shedding of the blood of animals. That was like their signature At the bottom of a contract, they were in effect saying, if I don't keep the promise of the covenant I've made, let that happen to me that I just done to that animal. Let my throat be split. Pretty explicit uh, type of uh, reminder, of the binding nature of covenants. In fact, the common expression in the Hebrew language for making a covenant literally means to cut a covenant. Where you find in English, in your English Bible, you'll find in in so-and-so made a covenant with so-and-so, or God made a covenant with, with whomever, or even human covenants. Very often, more often than not, the Hebrew word, that is used there is not make but literally to cut a covenant and has in view this idea of cutting animals the shedding of blood now why did God enter into this covenant of grace with Abraham and even with his infant children by attaching if you will his signature to it with the seal of circumcision why did he do that Well, certainly not because he was afraid that, you know, he might not keep his own word. It was not for his benefit that he gave circumcision to Abraham and to to Abraham's posterity. It wasn't for God's benefit. It was for Abraham's benefit. It was for the benefit of all of his children. And his children's children for generations to come. It was for their benefit. Because God cannot lie. God cannot break promises according to Titus 1-2. God will keep his word. So it was not for God's benefit, but for Abraham's benefit and Israel's benefit. So that they might grow in their faith in God's promises as they considered the blood of the covenant that was ratified in circumcision. Because you'll recall, circumcision was a bloody sacrament, whereas baptism is not. Circumcision, if you will, was a bloody covenant or a bloody um, um, sacrament, a sign and a seal, because, again, it pointed to one who was going to come And whose blood would ratify once and for all that covenant of grace with God's people. Unlike the cutting of animals which might be used to sign a covenant, and which afterwards would be that animal would be burned or buried, the cutting of the flesh of man in circumcision was not a seal that would soon pass away from one's memory because it was a part of their flesh, a part of man's flesh. Something that they continually could be reminded of, of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with his people, with his children and descendants. Now, I would have you see that the sign and seal of circumcision uh, represented and ratified primarily gracious spiritual blessings. I say primarily, not to the exclusion of material blessings, but primarily it represented and ratified spiritual blessings to those who received circumcision. Because that's what Paul says in Romans 4.11. What was circumcision a sign and a seal of? It was a sign and seal of the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was a sign and seal of that righteousness which is received by faith alone. That's what Paul says circumcision was a sign and seal of. It is not true, dear ones, as our Baptist brethren would have us to believe, that circumcision was a mere national sign for the Israelite nation or a mere outward sign of material blessings. Now, I don't deny that both of those things were included in circumcision. But all I'm saying is it was far more than that. It was primarily, according to Paul, a sign and seal of spiritual blessings because it signed and sealed a spiritual covenant the covenant of grace which is made in Christ Jesus and so let me simply make this observation Circ- circumcision was not a mere national sign and let me Let me uh, give you some reason for that. It wasn't a mere national sign for the Israelite nation. For it was first given to Abraham and his children in Genesis 17 before Israel ever became a nation with a national constitution, which was given to them in Exodus, uh, as we see in Exodus 19 and continuing on, and is renewed in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy to God's people. Although circumcision was later given to Israel as a nation to be a matrimonial sign and seal of her marriage to the Lord, circumcision also pointed each individual Israelite to the promises of forgiveness and righteousness through Christ Jesus. For if it was a mere national sign without personal, individual significance, Why were Israelites personally and individually called to turn to the Lord their God that they might be circumcised in their hearts? What does that mean if it did not have primary spiritual significance to the Israelite? To be circumcised in your heart. You see, that was the inward grace to which the outward sign pointed their need to be circumcised in their hearts, and the promise in the covenant of grace of the circumcision of a heart, the removal of that flesh, the forgiveness of sin, that is what is signified by that. And we find that phrase, to be circumcised in the heart, mentioned, for example, in Deuteronomy 10.16, in Jeremiah 4.4 and in Romans 2 verses 28-29 where Paul draws out this contrast between outward circumcision and inward circumcision. Thus we see that circumcision again was primarily according to Romans 4.11 a sign and seal of promises of a personal salvation through Jesus Christ and not a mere sign of national identity like someone might put a tattoo on their arm with a flag on it or something like that. But let me also say, neither was circumcision a mere outward sign of temporal or material blessings to Israel, to Abraham or to Israel, as our Baptist brethren also teach. To the contrary, it was a sign and seal. again, primarily, I'm not saying that it didn't include temporal or material blessings but it was primarily a sign and seal of spiritual blessings just like baptism note the following blessings that are represented and sealed by circumcision first circumcision was a sign and seal as I said earlier of the righteousness that comes from God by faith Romans 4:11). This is certainly a spiritual blessing. It's justification. Justification by faith. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And that's what Paul declares. Circumcision represented and ratified. Our Baptist brethren in this text call our attention to the fact that infant children are not even mentioned in this verse, but rather only believing Abraham is mentioned. And thus it is alleged that to Abraham alone was circumcision a sign and seal of the promise of justification, but not to his infant children. However, I would submit that if circumcision represented and ratified to Abraham the promise of justification by faith alone, it most certainly signified and sealed the same covenant blessings to Abraham's children as well. For circumcision represents Listen closely. Circumcision represents and confirms the same covenant, not a different covenant, the same covenant with infant children as it does with adults. It confirmed the same covenant with Abraham as it did when he applied that sign and seal to Isaac. The reason Abraham, I would suggest. The reason that Abraham was selected by Paul as an example rather than say Isaac being selected as an example was that Abraham's case proved most clearly to the Jews that one is not justified by circumcision because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Had he used Isaac who was circumcised from infancy, then the Jew might have argued, well, there you have it. There you find that here Isaac was a believer. He was circumcised first and therefore circumcision is the basis upon which one is saved. And without it, one cannot be saved. But you see, Abraham's case left no room for the Jews to dispute here, for Abraham was, as I said, circumcised after he believed. But observe this, dear ones, uh, there is no difference in meaning between the circumcision of Abraham and the circumcision of Isaac. Where does God say there is a difference in the meaning of circumcision as it was applied to Abraham and as it was applied to his? Son Isaac. Where does God say that there was a difference in meaning and what circumcision meant? Where does God say that it was a different covenant that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal of as opposed to Isaac? Where does God say that? Nothing in God's Word teaches that. In fact, everything, the the fact that we see the same sign and seal, the same covenant, flowing through that from that point on would indicate that it was that circumcision meant exactly the same thing to Abraham as it did to Isaac. And that is that God and this is what circumcision meant that God offers the promises of salvation To his people, he offers offers the promises of salvation to all who come to him by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Abraham had already believed, and so that particular promise was realized in his life. Isaac, when he received circumcision, had not yet come to faith, but it was still a sign and seal of the promises made to him which were subsequently realized in his life when he believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. It meant the same thing. Also, we see the spiritual side of the blessings of circumcision when we, as I noted earlier, look at the passages dealing with circumcision of the heart. I, again, won't repeat the same uh, verses. But that's, again, another way of seeing how circumcision signified and sealed spiritual blessings. Thirdly, we see the spiritual blessings signified in circumcision in that Christ was the seed. Christ was the seed to which the promise pointed, the promises made in the covenant to Abraham and signified and sealed in circumcision. We see that again in Galatians chapter 3, that he was the seed. Fourthly, we see the spiritual (coughs) blessings signified and sealed, primarily signified and sealed in circumcision from the promise made to Abraham that many nations would come from Abraham. Now, That seems, again, like many nations. Well, certainly there's a temporal and there's an earthly side to that, no doubt. Because we see not only do you have Isaac and through whom came Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, but you also see through Ishmael that Arab nations and through uh, uh, Abraham's second wife, Keturah, Uh, there were uh, six sons born who were also uh, the fathers of Arab nations as well and you see through the children of, of Abraham the Edomites who came through Esau and so there were physically or materially or temporally many nations that came from Abraham so that certainly is true however However, the spiritual significance of this promise was fully realized in the many Gentile nations that would be saved through Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. This temporal blessing of many nations actually pointed to an even greater spiritual blessing, the salvation of the Gentiles. That's what Paul means when he says the gospel was preached in this promise made to Abraham that from him would come many nations. He would be the father of many nations. How is the gospel made known in that promise if it is not that the nations, the Gentiles, would come to faith in Jesus Christ? A fifth. Spiritual blessings that is stated in that covenant that was made with Abraham in Genesis 17:6. kings. He's, uh, the Lord told uh, uh, Abraham kings shall come from Abraham. But again, that seems again like a material earthly blessing and it is certainly kings of Israel and Judah did issue forth from Abraham. But the spiritual fulfillment to which these kings pointed was realized again in Jesus Christ, who was to reign forever from the throne of David, according to Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, who was to reign over his church, spread throughout the whole world, and who was to reign as the prince of the kings of the earth, according to Revelation 1.5. See, this is just another spiritual blessing that's cloaked in that's cloaked in the outer garment of a temporal blessing. The temporal blessing is not what we're ultimately to see. We're to look beyond the temporal blessing to the spiritual blessing that is realized in Jesus Christ. That's what this covenant points to. A sixth spiritual blessing is that of union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Lord of the Covenant. That's a spiritual blessing that is mentioned in Genesis 17:7. 7, in the covenant that is made with Abraham. God says to Abraham that he would be a God to Abraham and to his children. He would he would take them into union with him and he would have communion with them. He would be their God and they would be his people. Well, that same promise, that same spiritual promise that God would be their God and they would be his people that's made in Genesis 17:7, 7, is repeated to Israel, all of Israel in De- Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 through 15, where this is the renewal of the covenant before they enter back into the promised land, having been in Egypt. Now they're about ready to go into the promised land and they are renewing their covenant with God. And God reiterates that spiritual promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. The same promise he made to Abraham. We come to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, where the blessings of the new covenant are made known, the forgiveness of sin and etc etc are made known in this passage. And again, the spiritual blessing of union and communion with Christ are mentioned there as well. Why? Because it is the same covenant that was made with Abraham, that was made with Israel, and that is made with God's people, Israel, in the new covenant and with all of the Gentiles who unite themselves under that new covenant as well. And then finally, this spiritual blessing of union and communion with Christ is mentioned in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21.3. Now, who is going to say this is speaking of a material, earthly, physical blessing when we find it in Revelation 21.3 where, again, we read, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The same spiritual blessing that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 17 to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 29 to God's people, Christians in Hebrews chapter 8 and in the new heaven and in the new earth in Revelation 21. You see, dear ones, that this blessing that was made and given to to Abraham is a spiritual blessing and not primarily an earthly blessing and finally the last spiritual blessing in the Abrahamic covenant and in the covenant even made with uh, Israel is a land. A land is promised to Abraham and to his seed in Genesis 17.8. Of what, I ask, was Canaan, though that was the land that was promised and which God gave to them and incidentally, which I believe God will yet restore his people, his faithful people, back to that land, And so I believe that the earthly aspects of that promise will yet even be realized to a greater degree than we have seen at this time because it will be a return on the basis of God's faithfulness to Israel. But of what was Canaan in type in a picture? Well, I think very clearly of heaven itself. Wherein is our everlasting city, the new Jerusalem, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. That earthly land was not to be an end in itself by way of blessing to God's people, but they were to look beyond that earthly land of Canaan to see and understand that God had promised them something far greater. That he had promised them a heavenly home, a heavenly country, a heavenly land. And that was, again, why I say primarily even when you read of the earthly blessings that were promised to Abraham and were signed and sealed in circumcision, even those earthly blessings pointed to greater reality of spiritual blessings. And if they missed that, then they missed really the the best part of the promise. That which was most significant about the promise. Dear ones, if only if the gospel promises were represented and confirmed in circumcision, not only to adults who could believe, but also to infants, as I have sought to present, to infants who could not yet exercise conscious faith in God, how are infants now who cannot yet exercise faith under the new covenant unfit for baptism, which represents and ratifies the same gospel promises, now having been fulfilled and accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. The whole argument of our Baptist brethren in denying baptism to infants is that there is no real identity between circumcision and baptism. Thus, we are told that we cannot conclude that just because infants receive the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament circumcision, that they should receive the sign of God's covenant in the New Testament, namely baptism. But dear ones, all of the spiritual blessings promised in the covenant of grace made to Abraham and to Israel are realized and fulfilled in the new covenant of grace through Christ's death and resurrection. It was a Christian covenant. It was a covenant in Christ Jesus. And they that covenant primarily spoke of spiritual gospel promises. That's the connection between circumcision and baptism. They're not, circumcision and baptism are not representing and are not sealing different covenants. They are representing and sealing the same covenant of grace. Both circumcision and baptism, dear ones, look to Jesus Christ. Circumcision looks to Christ to come, Baptism's, baptism looks to Jesus Christ who has come. Both represent and give God's signature to the promises of new life, union and communion with Christ, justification, sanctification. Dear ones, there is only one covenant of grace, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, in which the Lord has promised salvation for sinners. There's only one way that God has always said that man must be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. There's not two different ways to be saved. Therefore, the salvation that was offered and promised and was signified and sealed in the Old Testament by circumcision is the same salvation that is offered and been signified and sealed by baptism. And if children in the Old Testament, therefore, were recipients of that covenant sign and seal, we must look for a place in the New Testament where God says they can no longer receive that sign and seal, If God says nothing, then we assume that the same sign and seal as it's applied to children, or uh, even though baptism is the new sign and seal, that that sign and seal now also applies to children, even as circumcision did in the Old Testament. That silence where God continues the same covenant of grace to his people in the New Testament as in the Old, whereof children partook in the Old Testament, we would have to find children being specifically excommunicated from the church in the New Testament because they were part of the church in the Old Testament. Now, can we find a place in the New Testament where it says children are excommunicated now from the church? Children have no place in the church. They have no place in the blessings of God. The offers of salvation. Well, that simply cannot be found. Dear ones, these glorious promises... conclusion are made to you in the covenant of grace and they are received by faith alone that's what your baptism signifies and seals God has made you promises and they're realized in Jesus Christ and that's why it's important for you to reflect upon your baptism to think about your baptism and what the Lord is saying to you through your baptism and through the baptism of your children. You see, God has made promises to our children as well. As I said earlier, those promises are not realized in the lives of our children until our children trust in Christ alone for their eternal salvation. Those promises that are made don't guarantee Salvation, any more than circumcision guaranteed salvation to Esau. But nevertheless, promises are made. They are made to those who receive that. Certainly those promises. And the invitation of the gospel can be refused. God works effectually in the hearts of all of those he has chosen and called. And they cannot refuse it. They will receive it. But on the part of those who are not effectually called, they do refuse the gospel that is offered to them. And so, likewise, the promises in baptism may be refused if God does not not effectually apply the promises to the lives of those children and give them faith to embrace Christ. But the fact that promises have been made to them, to us and to our children, is a very significant matter, even if those promises are refused because to whom much is given, much is required. To refuse the promises which God offers to us is a grievous sin, is a heinous sin, is an aggravated sin. Promises never extended to you know, heathens somewhere who have never heard the gospel and because they die in their sin go to hell is one thing. But, dear ones, those who turn their backs on the promises made to them in their baptism is a significantly more serious and aggravated sin than even in the case of the heathens because we have turned our back upon the mercy and the grace of God that's been offered to us. And so, dear ones, today, we, we can uh, try to ignore what our baptism is saying to us and suffer the consequences of God's judgment as a result. Or we can embrace what our baptism is saying to us and enjoy the blessings of life forever and ever and ever what will you do with Christ who speaks to you today not only through his word but through the sacrament of baptism what will you what will you do with Christ who speaks to you through baptism will you ignore him or will you embrace him by faith alone. Will you please stand with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we do call upon Thee. Now, for Father, we inspect our lives, and as we do, we see how we have treated the sacrament of baptism with uh, contempt by ignoring it, by neglecting it, by not improving upon it, by not using it as an aid to our faith, strengthening our faith in the promises that have been made to us in the covenant of grace. And Father, we ask that Thou would forgive us and that, Lord, we would renew our covenant with Thee, even as... One of our covenant children are uh, baptized today. That we would each one in this covenant ceremony renew our own covenant with thee. That we would reflect upon the promises made to us as well as, Lord, to reflect upon the promises made to our children. And that, Father, we would renew our covenant with thee as well to train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and in the the one true Christian religion, O Lord, that is presented, O God, in thy word. We pray, our Father, that thou would have mercy upon us, for we are weak and frail, and we thank thee that thou hast condescended to us in our weakness to give to us this visible sign and seal to encourage our faith, to help us, O Lord, along the way. It is, O Lord, thy signature at the end of that covenant of grace every time we we witness a baptism and an opportunity for us to rejoice that those promises, O oh Lord, have been made over to us and for us to renew our covenant by saying, O oh Lord, that we, O oh Lord, embrace those promises. We embrace Christ and his promises made to us. Father, we pray that thou would speak to our hearts today and where we have erred, where we've gone astray, where we have backslid, and Lord, restore us. Convict us of our sin. May we be honest and transparent before thee. Search our hearts, O God, and know our thoughts. Lord, see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.